Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Max Verstappen and Red Bull enjoyed a crushingly dominant Spanish Grand Prix weekend, but what a race there was behind him as Mercedes pairing Lewis Hamilton and George Russell came through to bag the other two podium positions. But what made Verstappen so supreme, and how did the fight behind play out? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer all your questions are Scott Mitchell-Mown and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, we'll say hello to you first. How have you enjoyed the Spanish weekend? Um, yes, I've... Uh I haven't enjoyed it as much as uh, many many a Spanish Grand Prix in the past, but um, yeah, it's it's not it wasn't one of the the greatest ones this year. But it was it was interesting all the same, and the uh, we could sort of guess the level of dominance that Max Verstappen was going to have in that car around this circuit. We could have sort of done that before the weekend started, um, but yeah, some interesting stuff going on behind and wild swings in between qualifying and race and yeah it was very interesting yeah it's going to give us plenty to talk about in this podcast how about you scott i'm sorry i thought there would be more to the question than that i was waiting for your sentence to finish how have you enjoyed the weekend <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah it's been fine um i've uh, i can't remember the last time i was at the spanish grand prix because i missed um i, I missed last year's race and i think i missed the uh there was one the, whatever ones there were during the covid time i think i missed those as well so it's been a while since i've i've been back and it was quite nice, actually. I think I was the I was the Nico Hulkenberg of F1 journalists away since uh, 2019. So I actually quite enjoyed being back, whereas everyone else is kind of sick of the sight of it because they've been there so often. The traffic was slightly better this year, although the additional thing for the Spanish Grand Prix this year that has rather troubled me, which people might hear, is there seems to be some kind of very virulent pollen going around. So oh, you've, got... been, you've been dying, haven't you, this week? Yeah, I've been sneezing a lot. Although, worst of all, it like, gets into my lungs, so I have this sort of lung reaction. So... I'm not breathing properly, so if I start coughing uncontrollably, we'll know what it's about. A but. sneezing Ed Straw is um, actually mm. more painful for the rest of us in the media centre than a, it is you. That's a terrifying thing, a sneezing Ed Straw. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it is famous for the uh, for the volume and the the surprise attacks I I deploy. But uh, yeah, it, it punctuates the race. There are a few of those sneezes today. Certainly, hopefully, none of those on the podcast because I don't want to shatter the eardrums of anybody listening on headphones. But let's get into it, Scott, because. For this podcast, we're going to go against our usual format and divide it into two races. The first one of those races was the one-car race involving Max Verstappen. In a season of dominance, just how big an advantage did he have here? Uh, just absolutely colossal. I, I, I feel like this weekend um, we saw more and more glimpses of what the true Red Bull pace is. The the actual the the, the scope of their their advantage when when Verstappen really flexes his muscles and the and the the cars on a circuit that um allows it to to be pushed closer to to the maximum I, I I'm not saying for a second that Max ran this race at 100% um for for the entirety but there were moments where he was almost toying with with, with the opposition and I thought I lost count on the number of times I said this to you during the race but like there were times where he it just felt sarcastic the lap times that he was able to do, he would just sort of, he'd be easing clear, easing clear, easing clear, and then all of a sudden be six, seven tenths faster. And there was a point, I think, it towards the end of his first stint, where a few of the early pit stoppers, the the leading runners behind him, so Hamilton, Sainz, etc., had already stopped and put fresh tyres on. And Max is on 20 plus lap old tyres, and he's going four or five tenths quicker than them. 
it's he's it's just it's a it's a sporting form of mockery and then we saw that again at the end of the race where max was under the cosh in terms of track limits and he was being warned by uh Giampiero Labiasi his race engineer to to cut it out basically and be careful just bring it home so on like lap 61 of whatever it was 66 laps or something like that max punches in the fastest lap of the race by four tenths of a second uh okay he's on softs by that point and they weren't super they weren't super old um but it, it was just it was almost like a game to him and it's just it's scary for the opposition i think to see those see those glimpses to know that he's winning at 70 80% probably of 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 what he needs to do he's 100% in the moments he has to be he can turn it on like that and then he just has some fun he goes a bit closer to 100% when when he wants to if he wants to build a gap if he wants to go for fastest lap it's just it's at times on a track like this when the car's working that well when verstappen is how he is it looks like child's play. Yeah, he was utterly in control throughout. And two things strike me from this. One is what you've alluded to there, just how quick the Red Bull is. This is a very pure aero circuit. I did ask Christian Horner after the race how good it was to validate that on a conventional circuit because that will help them manage their ATR limitations, etc., and make sure that they're not overdoing it on this year development, although this year does feed directly into next year. But the other thing was, Mark, that Max Verstappen ability just to put it all together and be completely in control and I think we had a fascinating counterpoint this weekend because Sergio Perez struggled a bit and it just shows that just because you've got a good car the driver still has to do the job put it all together understand the tyres deliver when it matters and there was a big contrast between Verstappen and Perez to the point where you wonder what the result might have been if there were two Perez's in the two Red Bulls. Yes you have to unlock the code of the car and particularly the tyres and and until you unlock that code, particularly with the tyres, um, you you don't get access to that level of performance. But then it opens up. And and the, if if we're in a different era, we, we're now in a, a tyre constrained era where the the cars are so heavy and so fast and so torquey and have so much downforce that they they overwhelm the tyres. If we're in it. An era uh, like those in the past, where the tyres could stand up to the performance of the car, that level of advantage that the Red Bull has once you unlock the tyre equation. In the old days, that that you would see that car lapping the field. It, it, it's 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 a level of dominance like akin to you know an FW14B or something at its best and then at that, at this track which Scott was saying before at a, at a track where you've got very long very demanding very fast corners where it can really run free you're going to see that advantage exaggerated and but that said you do still have to crack the code of the tires first and that's what Perez failed to do and if you do that, it's just like any other car. It's just constrained by the tyres, and that's just what it does. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you'd, you were two Perez's in that car, it would look like the car was, um, you know, competitive, but uh, would have been soundly beaten this weekend. Yeah, it's just a great illustration because Perez is very, very good. It's just Verstappen is, as we keep saying, an all-time great, and he's just in an absolute brilliant seam of form. So this reminds me a bit, there was one a few years ago here in Spain, when Lewis Hamilton was dominant in the Mercedes in a similar way, but was also driving beautifully and putting everything together. It might have been 2020 from yeah, memory. It was, it was. 2020. Yeah. yeah, that that was one that was one of those where Valtteri Bottas got to the end of the weekend and just knew he'd been absolutely he just he looked like he'd gone well, like he had twelve rounds of an absolute ultra heavyweight. Yeah, it just shows, just shows. Also, we have the whole thing about Perez trying to keep his title chances alive and really working hard. Obviously, he had the off at turn five in Q2. He went again the next lap, but the tyres were past their best. So I guess, Mark, this just does illustrate what we've been saying all the time, which is that Perez is good, but it's hard to see him sustaining a title challenge. And obviously, he's lost even more ground. He finished fourth from 11th on the grid. So it's almost an insurmountable gap in terms of the level we expect Perez to be at without some extraordinarily unlikely sequence of bad luck events befalling Verstappen. Yeah, indeed, and it's 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 switched so fast, and you know if if he'd 
It was only a couple of races ago. He was, you know, um, Miami giving Max a, a good race and only one race before that where he was um, able to beat Max fair and square. So, yeah, it, it really has turned around very fast and it's uh, he really could have done without um, having that accident in Monaco. I think that's going to be... I think we'll look back upon the season say there that's where that's where where that's where any any vague chance he had uh he he, he surrendered it, it's very difficult to see him coming back from it it'll be over 50 points now won't it the the, the Fif- gap. 53 so, i think yeah yeah so two two full race victories clear is verstappen um i, I don't see I, you, you say you know it doesn't look like perez will sustain the title but he already hasn't has he, he he's 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 dropped the ball too many times. Is it three times in seven Grand Prix that he's he's failed to get to Q three? So and 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 twice twice out in um, Q one because of because of mistakes. Um, three qualifying sessions that have had significant mistakes. It's just yeah, it it's not even as simple as you know we we say all the time, don't we? You know when your peaks aren't the problem, but Verstappen's bad days were finishing a very, very close second to Perez, and he has a load more good days than bad days. Perez's bad days are, even this year in this quality of car, I guess it's partly linked to that that way of getting the lap time out of it and trying to live with Verstappen like Perez is. His bad days are, are really bad, and the, the, he has the occasional great day, but even a good day like this, I thought he actually drove really well to, to to get back to where he was, patient in the first stint, and then picked off more cars as the gaps opened up and there wasn't a DRS train and it was just a little bit easier to to go about things. But he still didn't get on the podium and I, I feel like roles reversed. I think Verstappen's not just getting on the podium in that race, I think he's winning it. Yeah, there's every chance of that. Red Bull thought that fifth was the likely result, but they hadn't factored in how much Ferrari would struggle on race pace. So that translates into fourth place. So yeah, I think it was a decent recovery in the race. Well executed by Perez to get back through to there. But yeah, he was just on a bit of a different level. He said he was experimenting with driving styles over the weekend, presumably to try and get a bit closer to Verstappen. But yeah, a really, really tricky weekend for him. And yeah, the the points don't lie, do they? And it's only possible really to see those continuing to go in that direction and that gap to expand. So now, Mark, let's now do the usual question of how the race was won but discounting Max Verstappen so can you run through how Mercedes beat Ferrari and Aston Martin to win the non-Verstappen class right well um so let's assume Max hadn't bothered with this race figuring he could just win the title without doing all the races and so he'd he'd become a Barcelona tourist for the day and he'd gone for a look at the Sagrada Familia and some of the other Gaudi architecture in the city uh, or maybe he saw the traffic at the circuit in the morning and thought, oh, I can't be bothered with this, and turned around. In which case, Sainz was effectively on pole on the Ferrari, but Lewis was soon right behind him. And the Mercedes was simply a much faster car on race day than the Ferrari. Simple as that. The Ferrari was a tenth faster in qualifying, um, but it was really just that that difference was just down to you know difference in the in, in the, the particular laps. Um, but on race day, there was no comparison. The, the two cars work their tyres quite differently and the Merck's definitely kinder on them um, but that was even more important than usual here because the tyre demands are so severe especially with a newly fast final corner so that difference was accentuated and as the first pit stop window opened Hamilton was either going to put a DRS pass on signs or undercut him he was coming past either way so to prevent either of those things Ferrari brought signs in on lap 15 and on the same soft starting tyre as Sainz, Hamilton stayed out for another nine laps. And with the level of degradation imposed by this track, that should have ensured Sainz, on medium tyres, 15 laps newer, would have been far quicker for those nine laps between his, his stop and Hamilton's. But he wasn't. Uh, the Ferrari was eating that front left and had to be driven accordingly. And Hamilton rejoined still right on Sainz's tail and now on far fresher tyres and he simply overtook him on track and then just disappeared up the road and won quite comfortably. And Sainz was then fighting a losing battle trying to stay in front of Russell and the other Merck, which had just as good a race pace as Hamilton, and Perez, uh, the one Red Bull driver who'd bothered to show up. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I think that's a, a good explanation of the race. And it does show how if Verstappen isn't there, sometimes it can be a much more interesting kind of battle. And it certainly was a, an interesting race, not a classic race by any stretch of the imagination to watch from that perspective. And I guess ultimately, as you explained, Mark, it was all very much defined by the race pace, which was defined by the, the front left tyre management it was a it was an unusually constrained race in terms of tyres even by f1 standards with threats to our nation waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice quick strategic thinking is crucial and with obstacles consistently impending determination is essential in overcoming them it's this willingness decisiveness and resilience that sets marines apart with our fighting spirit we don't just fight battles we win them Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Let's now get into some of the detail explaining the performance, Mark, because this was the first test of the much vaunted new baseline for Mercedes. We've had a huge number of questions from this from the Race Members Club, so we can work through some here. The first from Jay Gannon is whether this is a true step in performance for Mercedes or has Barcelona flattered the car like Melbourne? And if so, what does this do to the pecking order? Similar question from Danny Elliott about whether we should expect more of this from Mercedes. They're all very fair and valid questions. Um, But I'd say yes, it's a true performance step, but probably not to the extent it looked because its two main rivals, Ferrari and Aston Martin, were well below par this weekend. It's still realistically at least half a second per lap slower than a Red Bull. So that's, it's maybe improved by a couple of tenths with this upgrade um, and, and, and now has a different, wider foundation for development through the season than the original car. So um, I, I think we'll see still see differences in the pecking order behind Red Bull. I suspect Montreal, for example, will be good for Ferrari. Austria, probably good for Aston Martin, um, etc. So I think... The difficulties each of these teams had in Barcelona were aggravated by Barcelona itself, by that tyre that, that domination that we talked about, and just the particular way that each car was working the tyre, particularly the left front, and how those two, how those challenges were different in qualifying and, and the race. And so you had to get the balance and point between those two conflicting sets of demands. Um, so in qualifying, it was about getting good temperature quickly enough um, on on the first lap in very cool conditions, and in the race it was about keeping the temperature off that front left. So conflicting demands, and um, we saw the the, the Merck had a good um, balance between those two conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, uh, regarding Barcelona, there's probably something in the DNA of this car from last year that it's a good fit with Barcelona. So we'll probably need to factor that in too. You remember last year, Merck thought. And we all thought, yeah, they're on the way now. They, they, they've cracked the code and um, we, we'll see them being competitive everywhere now. But that just wasn't the case. Um, it, was very, it remained a very patchy car, sometimes quick, sometimes slow. Um, and probably less exaggerated version of that I would expect to see uh, for the rest of this year. It's, it's still essentially the same car despite the upgrade. Um, so I doubt we're going to see it just put sort of clear blue water now between itself and Ferrari and Aston. I think I think that uh, three-team little struggle will continue for the for the rest of the season, just according to track layout and the particular demands of, of the day. I'll throw the next question as well at you, Mark, which is from Ranveer Menon, who says, My question is about Mercedes' new upgrades and whether their handling characteristics of the car have been affected much by them. We heard George Russell struggling particularly with tie warm-up and also Lewis Hamilton saying last week he was feeling more comfortable in entry under braking. Could this be the result of the new front suspension general philosophy change? Yes, it could be. There could be something in that. I don't think that was entirely George's struggle. I think the um, they got a little bit greedy on right height and ran it a little bit too low. and it. it, it when the pace that you're doing in qualifying it that tends to rub the the outer edges of the floor on you know close to the ground and that's when you start initiating that bouncing um i think that was george's main problem but he did yeah he did um also probably partly as a result of that have difficulty bringing the tires in and lewis didn't um, but having more anti-dive on the front suspension, which the upgraded Merc has, it can definitely make front tyre warm-up trickier. 
and it would also give a less dramatic shift in the aero center under braking so you'd feel the car to be more stable when braking so it's got pros and cons um and and yes what what you described may may very well be part of that there's still a few more mercedes questions scott throw this one at you from jk says how much can we take from mercedes step up in form this weekend knowing that we saw a bit of a false dawn at the same circuit last year yeah there's there's not really much more to say than than what mark said just now the there the, there was an element of um mercedes suiting barcelona really well we 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 thought that they were going to make a, a big step forward from there and, and and they didn't i think the circumstances are slightly different this time around so this could be a bit more of a read and and i i just get the impression that Mercedes understands its car now in this moment better than at any time over the last 15 months. But that doesn't mean, and again, similar to what Mark said, that this suddenly means that the performance differences that we saw and the pecking order that we saw here this weekend are just going to be repeated at other tracks because the Mercedes, the Aston Martin and the Ferrari all generate their lap time in different ways and they're strong in different moments and in different circuit layout so it stands to reason that as we go to different tracks different teams will come to the fore and there's a question from mike griggs who says does the mercedes result in barcelona signal the beginning of our family's long-awaited anticipation of a mercedes rebound hypothetically what does that mean for the constructors championship if perez keeps being the chink in red bull's armor well i think uh i, I think red bull are, are, are long gone i think max will win this constructors championship um, single-handedly um, and if you take that worst case scenario or that negative type of thinking who knows maybe, maybe he'll have to but I, I don't think so I think Perez will make a, a, an ample contribution to the Ripple cause um, I think what's more likely is that you'll see the the benefit the Mercedes have of, of, of having what I think we all think is the best lineup in in, in Formula One Hamilton and Russell in the way Lewis put it, they, they they punch in great performances and great results week in, week out, almost without without fail. They're, they're incredibly incredible, incredibly dependable pairing. You look at all the points that they've racked up when the car hasn't always been particularly strong. So I think I think Mercedes is, I would as about as nailed on as you can be in that fight to finish second in the constructors championship. I'd be stunned if Mercedes isn't second in the standings this year. It's more about what it can achieve between now and the end of the season and get to a point where maybe it fights Red Bull on merit. Because the big thing for me is will there's a chasm between Red Bull and the rest. And Mercedes bridged that gap in a way this weekend that was very notable because Aston Martin and Ferrari underperformed. But there is a big, big gap to develop into there. Mercedes' goal has to be that it outdevelops the other two to the point where it chips away at that gap more than them. So it becomes Mercedes, big gap, uh, sorry, Red Bull, big gap, Mercedes, gap, Ferrari, Aston Martin. That that will be the aim. And if they do that, then Mercedes will be first in line to challenge Red Bull if and when Red Bull slip up or change focus to 24 or whatever and potentially allow themselves to be caught in the second half of the season. And just as a final question, Mark, to wrap this up, Simon Townend says, what do you think is possible for Mercedes this season? And how much do you expect them to close the gap, if at all? Um, yeah, I, I don't expect them to close the gap to Red Bull significantly. Um, I think e- e- even without big upgrades, Red Bull will still just gradually become faster and faster. They're, just, they're on a great curve and they have a, a foundation in in that car, which um, is, is, you know, it is the correct. It doesn't have... Um, false ceilings on it, which the Mercedes and Ferrari do because they were conceived around a completely different aero concept. So, uh, no, I, I, I don't see them closing up at all. While we're on the topic of upgrades, we can also talk about Ferrari, Scott, because Ferrari introduced its modified side pods and the new floor here. Not a massive new floor, but modifications to the floor edges, as well as a circuit-specific rear wing. The pace was decent in qualifying, but did you see any signs of an upturn in the race given Sainz finished fifth? Nope. Would you like to elaborate on that answer? Why not? <laughs> yeah, sure. I can try. It was um, it, it was a disastrous race for Ferrari. Um, it was like con- considering you had the upgrade here, and there was there was a performance step with with this upgrade. There was a there was a load benefit, especially at the rear of the car. And Ferrari talks about it being worth potentially two or three tenths of a second. 
Um, so I think that's why we saw in qualifying over one lap the same story we've seen so often this season where Ferrari does have an edge. And in a way, it was similar to like it was before Ferrari and Mercedes had major upgrade, upgrade packages in Miami. Um, similar performance profile there. A little bit skewed here because I actually think Hamilton should have been second in qualifying on on, on merit, I think the Mercedes had the pace to to, to out qualify Ferrari, which I think should scare Ferrari a little bit. But the 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 big the bigger problem with that performance profile is that not only was the oh Ferrari did really well in qualifying trend continue, the Ferrari disappears in the race trend continued, and concerningly for Ferrari did so in I thought quite an exaggerated way. This was it was a horror show in the sense that. Signs absolutely tumbled from challenging Verstappen into turn one to just shipping lap time hand over fist, especially that second stint. I think uh, Fred Vasseur, the team boss, called it a disaster. Um, and then to add insult to injury, Charles Leclerc couldn't even make it back into the points from his his pit lane start. So here we had a quite significantly revised Ferrari uh, taking its first steps down a new development path with what was meant to be an instant performance benefit and not just extra performance, but hopefully a bit better consistency, less peakiness, the the problems that we've seen so far where it has this really specific working window that it gets knocked out of super easy by um, track track temperatures and uh, wind conditions, all of this because of how sensitive it seems to be. And it was the same old story, if not worse. Now, th- there might have been some mitigating circumstances here with the the layout of the track and the specific demands of it, especially with the front left tyre, that were particularly bad for Ferrari. And Carlos Sainz seems seem to suggest that, or suggested rather, that this circuit seemed to bring out the worst in the Ferrari. And that was maybe a bit expected coming into the weekend. So it wasn't ever going to be their strongest event. But I think it surprised everybody within Ferrari just how bad they were in the Grand Prix, they 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 were a, a nothing factor in in that lead fight, and that's what I mean. I think it was an exaggeration of the the ills that we've seen so far this season. Inevitably, we've got some questions about this from the Race Members Club. Mark, this from PJ Doobie, who says, "My question is regarding the Ferrari. It seems Mercedes has convincingly overtaken them now in terms of overall performance. What does Ferrari need to do in terms of design changes to get closer to the front? What changes would you like to see this year in preparation for next year?" I'm not convinced that um, Mercedes has definitively overtaken them, um, as I referenced in the last question. I think part of it was track-specific and the the very exaggerated influence that the uh, tyre performance had here. Um, And I think there will be other tracks where the Ferrari's problems are not so limiting to its performance and um, where its qualifying positions will be much more uh, defining for its race position. But in terms of what it needs to do, I, I think we're already seeing the beginning of it with the latest upgrade. They're moving away from their original aero concept towards the Red Bull one, but just like Mercedes, they are limited in how far they can go this route by the existing tub, the the architecture of the, uh, the tub that was designed around a different concept. And so with a clean sheet for the 24 car, they can get on with researching how to extract the most from that style of car and get an understanding of the sophistication of the underflow and how that works in conjunction with a big undercut and a very different suspension. And that style of car is clearly the way to go for this set of regulations and there's no shame in following it. And I think, you know, it would be like um, refusing to follow uh, the original ground effect innovation because you hadn't thought of it. It's just obviously the way to go. You've got to get on with doing it. And I think uh, they've already recognized that and are proceeding in that direction. And Scott, a final question on Ferrari from Jack Aitken, who, as is tradition, we will say is not that one, who asks, what was the reason for Charles Leclerc's lack of pace this weekend? Was he struggling to adjust to the upgraded Ferrari or was there another reason for his lack of pace? Uh, I don't think Leclerc or Ferrari knew. He was um, he was baffled and, and convinced something was wrong in qualifying after that Q1 exit, which was just um, absolutely horrific, battling with something that he felt was weird on the rear end um, initially when he complained about it. I thought because he'd had a snap through turn 11 where everyone else had, there was this invisible river of water running across the running across the track after the rain from FP3 and just after that. 
I thought Leclerc might just be losing the rear through there and thinking that there was a a problem, but there was clearly something much um, stranger afoot in qualifying. And there was no obvious answer, partly because the car had to go into part fermé conditions and Ferrari couldn't check it, really. Um, so out of precaution, they just changed the, to- the, the, the back end of the car completely. Um, the, the, the feeling that Ferrari had was that this would, given that Leclerc felt the problem was at the rear of the car, change the rear completely, take some strategic power unit elements as well to avoid a penalty further down the line, would give him that would not only resolve any issue that is there because they've taken everything off and replaced it, but would also give him the confidence that it it, it had changed. But unfortunately, come the race, I think he had a, a as good a Ferrari as it was possible to have underneath him, but he had no front grip on the the hard tires in in, in the first stint. Um, just really really struggled with understeer. Had a fairly difficult or just a bit uninspiring middle stint on on the softs. It was okay. It just it just wasn't great. And then went back to the hards for the final stint and was much better than he was in in the first stint, which just baffled him and also Ferrari because they just they still cannot understand. And clearly, the upgrade didn't help with this. Why they cannot have consistent performance, compound to compound, run to run, lap to lap. There's just there's just something that's a bit evil within this car that means it's knocked out of a performance window super easily and the drivers just do not know what to expect. You know, Sainz had it with that awful middle stint in which he lost about 20 seconds to his his competitors and Leclerc had it with a first, first and third stint on the same compound attire in which the car behaved completely differently. Let's move on to Aston Martin now, Mark. It was Aston Martin's worst weekend of the season in terms of results with Lance Stroll 6 and Fernando Alonso 7th. So how much of that was down to Alonso's big Q1 error and then the smaller Q3 mistake, which I have to make on the grid when second might have been possible? How much was just down to the car pace? Uh, the Alonso error put him back a bit, but in reality, it probably only really changed the order between him and Stroll on race day, who was sixth and who was seventh. The Aston wasn't working its tyres well around here, almost regardless of which compound it was on, but especially on the soft. Uh, it had nothing like the Merck race pace. On the soft, it was about seven-tenths off. And I think even if Fernando had qualified second, which he could, which was perfectly feasible, a he'd have been hunted down and passed by both Mercs and Perez, just as Sainz was. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't think um, Alonso's error ended up having very much impact. And there's a question from Tim Pat Duffy, who actually says this is from my sons Jerry and Reggie Duffy, nine and seven, who asks, can Alonso get back on the podium? again this season and was the Aston Martin pace track specific so is there reason for hope here Mark of course he can Jerry and Reggie um he's gonna be he's gonna be back he's gonna be doing loads more podiums this year it was um I think yeah quite track specific and um I don't think uh I don't think we've seen the last of Fernando this year by any stretch of the imagination he's he's gonna star in many races yet so uh, don't worry about that the Alonso thing this weekend actually reminded me a little bit of um, Jensen Button at any time he went to Silverstone, where it was like, there was just seemed like an inevitability that this would be the race weekend. Something went awry and Fernando wouldn't get on, on the podium because there was so much expectation and hype and attention. Um, the the Aston Martin, the, well, the Alonso fans, I don't know why I'm pretending they're Aston Martin fans. The, the Alonso fans this weekend were were astonishingly committed and incredibly vocal and super super excited and it just felt like it just felt like it, you know because it's just that twisted irony isn't it it's just if there's one race where it's going to go wrong it'll be the one that you desperately need it to go right and it kind of started that way with signs being the Spaniard that had all the glory in qualifying and then obviously both were just in a race to go backwards the quickest in in the Grand Prix it's just it was, I was gutted for Alonso because it just felt like I, he said that he doesn't care anymore that he's had a bad weekend or a bad qualifying here than if he was in Australia. But for the fans, you know, you just want to give them that thing to cheer about. And they didn't have it with either driver, did they, come Sunday? Yeah, it just wasn't quite the weekend for that. And there was great excitement because the hope was at least one of them could get a, a big result. But yeah, they just didn't have the cars quite under them this weekend. Let's move on to Alpine now. Scott, what did you make of its performance level this weekend? Esteban Ocon 8th, Pierre Gasly 10th, although Gasly was as high as 4th in qualifying before his pair of three-place grid penalties. 
yeah, I think they underachieved um, against the level of performance that was shown and was possible. I don't think they'd have finished massively high up the order. I think fighting the Aston Martins would have been a bit better if they'd had that track position that Gasly should have had. Um, so I don't think they've lost a huge amount there. They are ultimately the lead midfield team and on their good days, they can get as close as possible to Aston Martin, Ferrari and maybe Mercedes, although certainly not Mercedes here. It it felt like a better result was on was on the cards and was possible though, but unfortunately, Gasly was the architect of his own downfall because he he one of the incidents I think the one with Verstappen I think the team was more or completely to blame for, but Gasly was also poor in getting out of the way of Carlos Sainz's Ferrari and qualifying, so the group penalties were totally justified. Yeah, and Gasly ended up very wide at turn two on the opening lap because there were a load of cars alongside him so he dropped to 14th as he put it he was basically 10 places behind where he qualified straight away so yeah I think ultimately the Alpine pace is about where you'd expect their front of that midfield group so 8th and 10th is probably about uh, par for them this weekend Mark Lando Norris was the star in qualifying with third on the grid before that first lap contact with Hamilton ruined his race so to answer a question from Oscar Robledo how do you explain that qualifying pace given the fact his race pace was disappointing with Oscar Piastri also fading from a points finish to 13th. Yeah, the demands of qualifying were completely different from those of the race. And this is what we were talking about before with the the extreme influence that the tyres had this, this weekend and the, the contrast between the demands in qualifying and race. Um, it was all about tyres, but in qualifying it was about how quickly you get heat into the front on a cool track um, which the McLaren is better than any other car at. We've seen that um, a few times already this year. Whereas in the race, it was all about keeping the heat out of the fronts, which the McLaren is not good at. And so, it, hence, it's it was in its its race its its qualifying pace was enormously flattered by how well it worked the tires, and its uh, limitations were um, exposed um, when when you when you switch that tire demand. Uh, so yeah, it was basically a, a very quick car in the very specific conditions of qualifying and a mediocre one uh, and the more conventional uh, thermal deg dominated uh, demands of race day. Yeah, and of course Norris's demise was hastened by that contact with Hamilton. It was a little bit, you see how it happens, but it was just one of those little things where he's caught out, perhaps didn't quite see it coming early enough when Hamilton checked up a little bit but it's not like it cost him a podium finish or anything Scott Joe Guan Yu finished ninth for Alfa Romeo after Yuki Tsunoda who finished in that position on the road was given a five second penalty for forcing him off the track so what did you make of their races and that penalty I was really impressed with both of them um, I thought that their respective teams did a good job of getting them track position um, with some early pit stops you and I had a conversation when this was happening that this was well and all well and good because the undercut was so powerful, but you did leave yourself vulnerable to either needing an extra pit stop or just fading late on with 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 older tyres. But once um, Joe and Sonoda were in those positions, and I think they sort of traded blows a little bit, Nico Hulkenberg was in that mix as well um, early on, but then really struggled. Um, Sonoda and Joe just really stamped their authority, respective authorities on a top 10 position and, and, and looked points contenders on merit throughout. Uh, didn't put a foot wrong, handled the the races um, very, very well. I was impressed by different things about them. I thought Sonoda's racecraft in particular was, was really strong. Uh, I thought Joe was much more um, impressive in terms of being more measured in restraining himself at the start of his stints, having the confidence that any positions he lost to other undercutters or people that were pushing their tyres a bit too hard, like the Haas, um, he would be able to gain back, which he did. Uh, and then I didn't care how they finished, with, with who was ninth, who was 10th. I just thought this is a lovely little result, a point or two for either of these drivers is going to be fully deserved in the context of this race and also their seasons. Because I think Joe's been really good up against Bottas in a car that's not been good enough so far from Sauber. Um and Sonoda has had Nick De Vries on toast for most of the season, but unfortunately he's in lower midfield machinery, so he is only ever sniping for the odd point or two. Um, it was just a shame that the way it played out meant that Sonoda lost his points position, but he only has himself to blame. The 
the the battle with Joe was um was was hard, but I I understand why Sonoda feels aggrieved. He felt he'd left Joe enough space. On hindsight, I don't think he did. At the time in which Joe bailed out of turn one on the outside, there was a bit of room, but then Sonoda's car kept coming across towards the exits. So I think he was always going to squeeze him. Um, it always feels really harsh when the crime is over one position, but the punishment knocks you back several positions. That that always feels that always does feel a little bit harsh. And Sonoda was absolutely broken by it after the race and really furious. But ultimately, he did he did do the crime. Um, it's a shame that he lost his points, but please for Joe, he felt that was his best race in Formula One, and and, and I do think he performed to a very high level. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Really, really good performance from Joe. And yeah, the penalty, you see why it was given. The regs, as they are phrased, or the guidelines are fairly clear on that one, regardless of what you think of it. Those are the guidelines. So you apply them. So yeah, a good result for Joe. And Sonoda still having a good season, despite that moment, still finished ninth on the road. Mark, we saw Nico Hulkenberg running in the points early on, but he quickly faded. So what was the problem for Haas? It's a boring answer, I'm afraid, but tyre deg ham, that's what this race was all about. And the both Haas cars actually ended up having to do three stops because the uh, the tyres just fell off a cliff and uh, they didn't have any option but that. And their pace wasn't good enough to reclaim the 20-odd the seconds uh, you lose for the extra stop that they had to do over everybody else who did a two-stop. And uh, it, it's it's been the ghost of a problem for Haas for quite some time this but you know you get most most races you don't really see it now you used to see it every race and but it, this this car it, it, you only see it when the demand when the tire demands are extreme um and that's what this weekend was and yeah i, I don't think you could really um blame either driver for it it's just the, the car is just very very uh hard on the tires when it's about um thermal dig it can't be coincidence, Mark, that it, this is a car that is basically a Ferrari under the surface, can it? No, I'm sure there's something in that. It's, the, it's not just you know the 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 way that the the, the, the suspension works, the tires, the, the the way that the car behaves. Um, you know when you when you're braking in 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 the beginning of the corner, the way it just loads up. It might be something about that that that's. It's in both cars. It, it could well be that, but it, whatever it is, it, it hasn't been nailed. And um, it, it, yeah, you, you might be right. It might well not be a coincidence. It might be a common theme between the two cars. Yeah, that's a mystery for Ferrari and Haas, perhaps, to solve. But I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, as that trait's been there for some time. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. 
Well, as always, we will dedicate the final part of our race review podcast to questions from the Race Members Club. To find out how to join the Race Members Club and the benefits available, beyond the chance, of course, to ask questions on this podcast, head to therace.com and click on Join the Race. Scott, the first question to you comes from Hannah Partridge, who is Chris Partridge's daughter, one of our regular questioners, who says, I just wanted to ask, as Max Verstappen's front wheel appeared to be quite a way in front of the yellow line where the cars are supposed to stop after the formation lap, how far in front of the white grid box markings and the yellow line can you be before it's classed as out of starting position, earning a penalty? I've attached photos to illustrate the reason for my question. They were very useful photos, which I know you've had a quick look at, Scott. Uh, yeah, so uh, basically we've had this, um, this has cropped up before already this season with with Verstappen. Um, I don't know if, uh, Hannah, you saw the um, the Australian Grand Prix where we had the, the restarts late on. I think there were, I think there's actually one or two of those starts where, where Max's car looked like it might be out of position. Basically on the, the white grid box marking is fine, over it is a problem. So as long as there is a part of the the... The, the 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 wheel basically making contact with that that white box um you're you're safe i honestly do not know <laughs> how an f1 driver can get it that right and when we've had these we've had a few of these haven't we out of position penalties already so far this season especially the first couple of races i i always say this, i i'm surprised we don't have more because the visibility is impossible and once you get to the point where you're trying to judge if your front wheels are actually on or before the um the, the the white marking um i think it's just total guesswork i honestly don't understand how i, I verstappen's a braver person and i i i'd be I, i'd be leaving myself a little bit more margin but he's just uh seeking every little bit advantage he can get isn't he yeah there's always some tremendous precision going on there somehow or other mark a question for you from max Stipe, who says following max passing vettel's win record with red bull he stands 13 wins away from vettel's all-time win total of 53 what chances do you give him of equaling vettel and winning 13 of the last 15 this year it's a tough ask but it's definitely achievable if it was all on performance alone i'd say definitely but racing is not usually as straightforward as that and you know that the chances of a safety car coming at the wrong moment or a clash with a back marker or you know um, um just aquaplaning on a on a, a, a deep river across a track that, that wasn't there on the previous you know, all those usual things I, th- I think the the chances of it not going wrong 13 times out of 15 uh, I think yeah maybe about even but really, I really your estimates as good as mine. You're predicting it's a it's a it's a mugs game, even even when you know what the variables are. Um, so yeah, I'd say it, it's it's on, but I wouldn't be confident. I certainly wouldn't be putting money on it. On a similar topic, I'll take the next question from Joe Andrews, who says another dominant display by Max. Do you think he will break his own record of race wins in a season, or do you think another team can topple the mighty Bulls? Well, the record for wins in a season is fifteen. He's got seven, and what's he got? Fifteen races left. He could. All those reasons Mark mentioned. There's things that can be there to trip you up. You could argue Red Bull will ease off a bit because of the ATR restrictions, etc. But their advantage is so big. There could be grid penalties for power unit components, etc. But he's certainly got a very good chance at it. The one thing I do know is Verstappen is just going to, much like Vettel in that second half of 2013 when he got all those consecutive victories, he wants to absolutely get every single win. He doesn't just want to win enough. He wants to win every single race. And I think he's going to have a chance. Scott, next question for you from Urban Strenchan, who says, with this recent batch of upgrades, do you see any team really threatening Red Bull's dominance or are they too far ahead of the others? Um, I I think the dominance will continue until and beyond they've won both championships this season. I think we might have a 2019 style few more teams in the mix at certain races later in the year, but that's going to require Red Bull to completely, completely move off the 23 car and the other teams go hell for leather right to the end of the season. And even then it might not be enough. So I'm, I'm still glass half full optimistic that we might have a few more races that are closer in the second half of the year but I don't think anyone's ever going to get close enough to do anything about them on a consistent basis. And I, yeah, the, 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 the destination of both championships is already a, is decided as far as I'm concerned. 
Next question from JK for you, Mark. How much of a chance does Joe Guan Yu have of retaining his seat for next year? A superb drive today surely doesn't hurt his prospects. Oh, if he just keeps doing what he's doing, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't still be there next year. He's making good progress. Um, I think, you know, if, if the next Max Verstappen away and Senna was knocking on the team's door, he might be at risk, but he, he's not. So, And he was in a good feisty old battle today, wasn't he? And we, we talked about earlier on. Uh, the car's not great, but he's doing all that could be expected, really. And you've got a good um, barometer there in, in his team at Bottas. And uh, I think he's, he's doing a great job. Yeah, last I heard, he didn't have a contract for next year, but he should have a very good chance, I'd agree, with staying with the Sauber team. The next question from Patrick Duran, which I'll take. I felt the penalty for Sonoda was completely wrong. Do you think Gunter Steiner is right that F1 needs professional stewards for consistency? And do you think that the inconsistency in calls is holding back the sport in some ways? Well, I certainly agree with Gunter that there should be professional permanent stewards, whether that's three that do all the races or a small pool of maybe five or six or something, so there can be a little bit of rotation. Professionalism has been the case in all the other really top-line, big-money professional sports, and I really think F1 should follow that. Now, whether it'll improve consistency a little bit, I'm always a little bit wary of the consistency or inconsistency because every single incident is a little bit different. I would think of it more as a means for continuity, which is a subtly different way of looking at it. It will mean that the stewards would have complete intimate knowledge of all the case law, if you want to think of it like that. They've got a very good database they can access to check previous examples, etc., and interpretations. But I think the stewards that they have got, the vast majority of them approach it in a very professional way, but they are not professional stewards in this case. I think professional referees make sense, and I think there can be gains made by doing that. It just seems the logical move. Scott, question for you from Jack Aitken. Still not that one. The removal of the chicane was popular with fans and drivers alike and seemed to transform this racetrack. What was it that changed behind the scenes that finally allowed for this track configuration to be used in F1? I think it was a bit of a just constant groundswell of dislike for the for the chicane and the fact that it was just becoming increasingly unsuitable for, for F1 cars, especially this generation. Like last year, that chicane was probably one of the worst places you could watch a 2022 F1 car go through. I mean, we had this conversation earlier because I, I noted that um, David Coulthard in the uh, live commentary of qualifying yesterday referred to them as piddly little chicanes. And you said, uh, I don't know why people hate chicanes so much. And I did say, well, that one is particularly rubbish. <laughs> I think it's a pretty crap example of one. Um, so I think there's an element of that. And I, I think there's also... Um, two factors one was that it's not going to hurt overtaking down the start finish straight to turn one because it's already rubbish um, and these cars might follow better through those final two corners than they did you know 15 or so years ago but the other factor as well was just f1 wanting to give i think fans a bit more of a dynamic experience when they're watching it because it is a more it is a greater spectacle whether you're watching trackside or on television, it's more impressive, those final two corners, qualifying and the race. So I think it was as simple as that. Next question for you, Mark, from Philip Esposito. Back in 2019, F1 rejected the idea to mandate all three tyre compounds be used in a race. Should they reconsider? The variety of strategies and natural jeopardy of pit stops produced 107 overtakes today. Might drivers push more if they were required to make at least two stops? Or would all teams converge on the same race strategy? I think you may have answered your own question at the end there, Philip. I, I think with a a standardised two-stop, so you, you, you're you, that's what you're effectively mandating with using the three compounds. It, it, it's very, very rare that a three-stop is actually fast, the fastest way to run any any race. So, if you are effectively mandating a two-stop, uh, the op, the optimum strategies would be less varied now rather than more. I think. Uh, at least at the moment, in the two-stop races now, some might try a one because it's it's only a little bit slower, or the one-stop, some might try a two because, you know, it, it works better for them if they can clear traffic. But I think if you're effectively mandating a two-stop, I think you'd get less variation. The next question I'll take from Oscar Robledo says, should Ocon be penalised for his late block on Alonso? I'm not aware that any action has been taken at the time of writing. Indeed, no action has been taken. I would suggest that Sonoda's pushing Joe off the track was less egregious, yet incurred a penalty. Well, there's a few things here. As I said earlier, the Sonoda-Joe thing was covered by the guidelines, so that's ultimately the 
way they were applied. What Ocon did seems to be within what's accepted in the guidelines. I must admit, I don't really like it. I think it's a little bit too aggressive. And I've seen a number of accidents in motorsport with open wheelers with people doing that that have been pretty large. So I'm not super keen on it. I did ask Esteban if he felt it went a bit far. He obviously said it was it was fine. But I, yeah, I wasn't completely happy with it because I think those late moves are someone's pulling out um, all for defending, but they're a bit iffy on the straights. They're a bit unsafe because you can have effectively a plane crash type crash. This case was okay. You could just say it's two drivers going hard at it. But yeah, it's the kind of thing I'm I'm a bit wary of. Scott, question from Thomas Knight, who says, after a good Monaco weekend until the rain hit, Tsunoda put in another very good drive somewhat under the radar. Is he operating at a better level this season? Yeah, he is. We've um, we, we've we've touched on this a few times now that he's, he's doing a good job. Um, every now and again, he doesn't put it together the way that you should do in, in, in qualifying and um, he had a much better qualifying performance in him than he showed this weekend um, but he he quickly undoes that with how feisty he is and how good his car positioning is at the moment on, on opening laps to, to regain any lost ground so he's either qualifying strongly or racing strongly enough to offset it and he's very very good at grasping opportunities early in the year when the car was its least competitive he he would just slip out of the top 10 more often than not. But we've seen it a few times now. He he is able to hold his own there. Um, so I think he's doing a very good job. He He's still he's still not the, the full package by by any means. And he's, by his own admission, he's still um, losing control a little bit of himself, sometimes emotionally. I think he should have or could have been a little bit more conservative in the race today, bank the point instead of, um, trying to hold on for two, but that's just how he is. It's how he's racing. He's not doing anything um, egregiously wrong. Uh, it, I, I think he's actually having a, a very good season. I'd be surprised if he loses his drive at the end of the year. Uh, the way he's going at the moment, it's the same with Joe. It's a no-brainer to keep him. I love his turn of phrase. He's, when he was um, talking about his uh, control of his emotions, he just said, uh, yeah, sometimes my head gets too hot. And I just think that's just such a lovely way of, of putting it. It's almost like a literal translation from Japanese to English. He also said something like that he needs to learn, it's still room to improve how he manages his volume. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, these ground effect regulations are all about managing volume, aren't they? And yeah. uh, airflow volume and expansion. But there we go. That's a good little one from me but yeah Mark <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that what? one it, it seems it seems so contribution. clever it seems so yeah, I loved so it clever. it was great I like it yeah I hope the listeners appreciated yeah. and enjoyed that one I'll blame that on my uh, slight breathing difficulties but another question from Thomas Knights for you Mark who says where was Bottas's pace this weekend just lagging at the back end of the midfield for most of the race uh, yeah, he was nowhere. He had a nowhere weekend, really. It began going wrong in qualifying when he lost a lot of time in traffic on his outlap, and so he lost tyre temperature, so he didn't even get out of Q1. Um, and then he had contact on the first lap, which damaged his floor, so that was um, the, the explanation for his lack of pace in the race. Um, yeah, it, it's. I think I think it's just one of those weekends, but he does seem to be having his more than his fair share of them, um, and I think probably he needs to, uh, you know, Focus in a little bit on, on, on the, the, the something not going quite right, and I, I think he needs to get to the bottom of what it is. Yeah, especially with Joe doing so well as we've said. A question from Dewey Priest who says, "I'm sure I won't be the only one to send this question in, but I'd love to hear some thoughts and a bit of a tech breakdown on the Williams underfloor that we all got a glimpse of. To the very untrained eye, it looks worryingly less sophisticated than those further up the field. Is that a budget issue?" or, as respectfully as you can put it, down to inferior engineers. Well, I'll take this one. I'm not going to do a technical breakdown of the Williams underfloor because I haven't had a really close look at it. We'll try and get Gary Anderson to have a proper look and talk about it in depth, maybe on our tech podcast, or he might well do uh, something on the on the race website. I think the one thing we should say is I think the photograph almost oversimplified what is a much simpler floor. There was a lot more shaping, I think, going on in the floor than... Perhaps there appear to be in the picture, but 100%, as Williams will admit, it's much less complex. I don't think it's down to inferior personnel. I just think it's down to a team that had a very long period of underinvestment and struggle. It lost ground compared to the bigger teams, and it did lose some people as well. It's been behind on Aero for a long time. That's something they're trying to change with the appointment of a new technical director and new head of Aero that James Vales is close to finalising recruiting. But I think what it shows, I was speaking to Dave Robson about this, the... Uh, Head of vehicle performance, I think, is his uh, his job title. We sort of the head engineer, if you like, trackside. 
and he was talking about the complexity of it, the difficulty of complicating. I did say, does it show the almost daunting scale of the challenge that Williams has got to get its aero understanding up to that level? to be able to really do all that fine detail work in it. And, uh, yeah, there was some some acceptance there. So it's not that Williams are stupid by any stretch of the imagination. Very, very good people there. And their car is still very, very quick. It's just not as good as a lot of the cars on the grid in Formula 1. Uh, but it does show how far they've got to go. And you can't just simply copy it. You've got to understand what you're doing. So, yeah, a measure of what Williams needs to do. But they're catching up from a couple of decades of, uh, of lost ground. So it's going to take them some time well thanks very much to scott and mark as always we'll have plenty of spanish grand prix reaction on the race.com and don't forget the hyphen if you're headed there if you'd like to hear more have a listen to one of the race's other podcasts such as our indycar pod or bring back v10s and also take a look at our youtube channel with two races in two weekends in the record books there's a couple of weeks to go to canada but in the meantime stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of formula one The Athletic.